today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. the world and see, man, there are people that, that are being treated unjustly. You do justly. You love mercy, not just for yourself. Hey, all of us want mercy, amen? But are we willing to give out mercy? And is mercy the first thing that we think of? I know many times, man, somebody will do something or say something. I just got to confess to you, mercy isn't necessarily the first thing that comes to my mind. But I know it should be. And that's, that's the direction I want to keep growing in, is that when harm is done toward me, that mercy becomes the first thing. If we were to go around asking non-believers how they would execute justice and mercy at the same time, many of them would probably be pretty stumped. However, we as believers know that this is possible by none other than the cross of Calvary. In today's message, Pastor David will teach you the importance of living out a just life, yet extending mercy to those who falter. In his study, you'll learn that while it might be tempting to cry for justice over the wrongs of the world, we would do well to remember the mercy we've received. Now here's Pastor David in the book of Micah chapter 3 as he continues his message, The Adulterous Bride. They felt that because God had taken them out of Egypt, called them his people, that in essence they could get away with anything. And the problem comes in the Christian community when we believe the same thing. I prayed that prayer back years and years ago. I'm saved. I can live any way that I want. Beloved, God's not going to be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. And God's not going to be mocked when we take either lightly a true commitment or what we made wasn't really a commitment at all, but just the mouthing of words. Verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Definitely judgment's coming. As far as Israel, uh, Assyria was just right around the corner, just just a couple of years from the time that Micah is writing here. They had already, again, started attacking in the outskirts. Very soon, the northern kingdom was going to fall, 722 BC. For Judah, the judgment was held off for another 120 years ago. 586 was the final downfall, but even before that, in 590s, they were beginning the, 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 the attack of the battle. Babylonians and the taking away of the captives like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. 
So again, in the midst of all of this coming judgment, all of this destruction, the, uh, again, we see the amazing uh, factor of God's grace and God's mercy because in the midst of all of this, God still comes and he offers a ray of hope. Not for the wicked, but for those that have been caught up in that overall judgment, even in that overall judgment and the wickedness of the land, and yet there were some, even in the midst of that, that had remained faithful to the Lord. A remnant, if you will, and as we've shared, as we've gone through these Old Testament studies, God has always had a remnant. In the worst of times, even after the birth of the church, through the dark ages, through the the perversities that in the name of the church that took place uh, around our world, God still had a remnant of true believers. And we see this here. Just as in the opening verses, Micah tells us that at the Lord's coming, the mountains are going to melt under him and the valleys are going to split like wax before the fire. He now find in chapter 4, a time of redemption and restoration. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. These these things that had melted before at his coming are going to be restored. And people shall flow to it. Many nations, verse 2, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here also we find this, this, this covering and this blessing that's going to come upon those that have been oppressed during this time. Look down in verse 6, still chapter 4. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted, even those that he's afflicted. Do you catch what's going on? There are are some that are going to be afflicted because they were disobedient. Years ago, we used to say, going to the woodshed, okay? God got their attention by bringing affliction. But their heart was his, but they had walked away. And beloved, Understand that there are two categories in this. There are those that never really have a relationship with God at all. And they go through the, well, today, put it in today's vernacular, they go through the churchy thing, and yet there's no real relationship. And then they walk away and they're just back in the world. And then there are those that are true believers. Because of, again, they're, they're, they, because they haven't fed the spirit and they've allowed the flesh to get strong, they fall back into the world and God will bring, again, adjustments of attitude, okay? That's a good way of saying. He'll bring discipline. And he says, I'm going to bring them back, those whom I've afflicted. In verse 7, I'll make the lame a remnant. And the outcast, a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on, even forever. Now, beloved, that again, that has not happened yet. That's something that is yet to take place. Prophetically, we see the the coming situation of Judah being taken captive by Babylon. And yet even that, that's, that's only for a time. Look down in verse 10. 
Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered, there the Lord will redeem you from the land of your enemies. So God's saying, yes, I'm going to bring punishment, I'm going to bring discipline. There are consequences for your rebellion, and that's going to happen. But I will redeem you. I'll bring you back as my people. But in all, in all of Micah here, we see the most powerful of all the prophecies, the coming of Messiah out of this small suburb just outside of Jerusalem, the little town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Look in chapter five, down in verse two. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are of old from everlasting. So here the Lord is speaking not only about the coming of the ruler of Israel, but he's also speaking about the eternality of that one that's coming, whose goings forth are from of old from everlasting. That could only be the promised Messiah. That's not a new king that's coming in. No, that's only the promised Messiah. The very passage was known, again, as as a messianic declaration to the rabbis, to the scribes, to the chief priests. As a matter of fact, when Herod sought to find out where, remember when the Magi came to Jerusalem and they went to Herod, they figured, man, this is the center of what's happening. Surely this is where the king ought to be, this new king of, of Israel. And they went to Herod and they said, hey, we want to know where is he who was born king of the Jews? And Herod got really you know, upset about that because he was the king over that area. And so he called in the chief priests and the scribes and they said, hey, and he secretly wanted to find out, hey, where is this supposed to happen? It was the chief priests and the scribes that brought to him this very verse in Micah that again, uh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's where he's going to be born. And again, we, we, we see this in chapter 6. Then we enter into, a, in essence, a courtroom scene as the Lord himself declares the uh, charges against the people. And he speaks very clearly about how he had, had, had brought them out of captivity. He had set them up as a nation, and yet they turned against him. Micah chapter 6, look down in verse 3. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Even though this was still the time at at this point in place where particularly in Jerusalem there were still times of sacrifices in the temple while Micah is writing here, the Lord makes it very clear to the people that he truly desires so much more than just this act of religious sacrifices. Still here in chapter 6, look what he says down in verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God. 
Years ago, I was man, just counseling with a guy that just seemed to have such a hard struggle in his life, living his life for the glory of God. He was continually falling and just, man, his life was just an absolute mess. And one day, he just didn't, in the struggles of things, he says, man, I, I just can't deal with all the, uh, the, the rules and the regulations of Christianity. And I thought to myself, well, that's kind of weird. I don't know of a whole lot of rules and regulations on Christianity. I know there's some denominations that have a lot of rules and regulations. But by and large, you know, ours is, man, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Man, and that is all the commandments. Just do that and you're fine. But the Lord reminded me of this passage in Micah. And I just shared that with him. And I told him, man, what God really requires of you, just to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And beloved, in, in those three little things, that's not discounting the loving Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or loving your neighbor as yourself. Because I see in this Old Testament version of that, that very same declaration. Do justly. Look around the world and see, man, there are people that that are being treated unjustly. You do justly. You love mercy, not just for yourself. Hey, all of us want mercy, amen? Amen. But are we willing to give out mercy? And is mercy the first thing that we think of? I know many times, man, somebody will do something or say something. I just got to confess to you, mercy isn't necessarily the first thing that comes to my mind. But I know it should be. And that's, that's the direction I want to keep growing in, is that when harm is done toward me, that mercy becomes the first thing. Just, again, the, the heart of Christ. The, the heart of Stephen, as they were stoning him, and, and Stephen looked up and said, forgive them. The heart of Jesus as he was being nailed on the cross. Father, forgive them. To have that kind of a heart and a mind, you know what? My life has to be right vertically to have that kind of an attitude. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. To walk humbly with God means that I understand who I am and I understand who he is. I understand that, man, but for the grace of God, I'd I'd be out of here. I'd be gone. I'd be toast. Well, because of the grace of God, because of the greatness of God, because of the love of God, the mercy of God that sent Christ on the cross to pay for my sin, when in my rebellion and in my attitude of, man, filled with the flesh, filled with the things of this world, not caring about God while I was still his enemies, God sent Christ to die for me. And then he, even as Hosea says, he wooed me to himself, just like he's done for those here that know him. It's not that I woke up one day and says, hey, I think I'm just going to turn to God. No, every day I woke up in my life, I said, I just want to please David. I just want to do the things that David wants to do. And yet God, in his love and in his mercy, began revealing himself and drawing me to him through his love and through his mercy. And because of that, because I know this guy and I know the greatness of who God is, 
That's when we walk humbly before the Lord. We don't puff ourselves up. We, we understand, man. But for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. The people had gotten so caught up in, in ritual and in ceremony. They were going through, again, bringing it into this vernacular, they were going through the churchy thing. They were doing all that stuff. But their heart weren't God's. They didn't mean a thing to them on the inside. They were serving the Lord with their lips, and yet their hearts were given to all these pagan gods, to to acts of the flesh and attitudes of the flesh and the practices of non-believers. And the problem comes for us today in that too often, even within the church, we're doing the same thing. We may not have a cauldron out here and doing animal sacrifices and temple rituals, but all too often we get caught up in the busyness of church activities and church functions, working on the outside, but not truly devoted on the inside. I feel that the Lord's charge today, today, even for us here, I believe that the Lord's charge against the church today could be very much like his charge against the people of Micah and Hosea's day. In the New Testament, Peter writes out some very sobering words. Just write this down, look at it later, unless you can flip there real quick. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter writes, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Do you, do you realize that as I thought about that, I, I got to thinking, I am scarcely saved. I'm, I'm barely saved. It's only by the blood of Christ. I, now, I understand the greatness and the significance of it. I understand that. But you know what? That's the only thing that's saving me. It's not Jesus plus all the good works that I've been able to do. It's not Jesus plus the fact that, hey, I've done this and I've done that and I've done that and I've got a lot of things that I can lean upon. No, it's only by the blood of Christ. And if we're just, if that's how we're saved, and it is, what about the ungodly, the sinner who have, man, they've never turned their heart and life to Christ. They have no hope. You understand that? They have no hope outside of a life that is given and surrendered to Jesus Christ, understanding that their sin is paid for by the grace of God through the blood of Christ that we receive by faith. Outside of that, I don't care how nice Aunt Hilda is outside of Christ. She has an eternity separated from God. And everything that I read in the Word says that that eternity, for those that don't know Him, is going to be an eternal punishment. 
Because God has done everything that he can possibly do. And I know God is unlimited to this. There's nothing that God can't do. But hear what I'm saying. God has done everything necessary. Let me put it that way. God has done everything necessary to reveal himself to mankind. And you might say, oh, what about the, what about the aborigines in the middle of Australia? What about, what about the tribes in deepest, darkest Africa? You know what? All you got to do is look at the first chapter of the book of Romans and understand that God has made himself known to every man. Wow. To every man. And yet man has rejected that knowledge and sought after his own desires. And still, yet, God calls man to himself. God calls man to himself. The most rebellious, the most wretched. We get testimonies all the time of those that are over in prison, over in the Florence area. Men and women both who've who've just absolutely destroyed their lives, destroyed their families and everything. And yet once God brought discipline, got their attention, it's the old, how do you get attention? The, the attention of a mule? Well, a two-by-four across the forehead usually works. And for some of us, that's what it takes. And God, in doing that, he does that out of his love to reveal the greatness of his love. Oh, that man would turn their hearts to the one who truly loves them who loved them so much that he gave Christ to die for them. The end of Micah's message, chapter 7, brings it right home. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. He who began a good work in you will continue to complete it, to bring it to completion. If you know Christ as your Savior and you struggle in in areas in your life, know that because of the greatness of his love for you, he's going to keep at you. Again, there, there, there was a poem years ago the hound of heaven. Again, it's the, whole, the story of God nipping at the heels of people through the labyrinth of time. This man runs from him. And yet God, in his persistent perseverance of his mercy, continually going after them, the hound of heaven. Beloved, I don't know about you, but there have been many times in my life that I'm glad that there's a hound in heaven. Open our hearts, change us from within.
Have you noticed a theme weaving its way through Pastor David's messages and really through the Bible? That theme is salvation. It's Jesus. From the very beginning, God planned for His Son to come save the world from its sins. You find this plan ingrained in His Word, in the lives of the key people of Scripture, and in the words of truth each book provides. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Through the Bible, we pray you're finding Jesus not just in the text, but in your everyday life, too. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you'll be able to listen online at theopenword.com. There's several messages there, in fact, and many of them go even more in-depth through a verse-by-verse study of each individual book of God's Word. That website again is theopenword.com. Before our time is up with you today, we'd like to turn it back over to Pastor David for a quick request for you, our listener. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I wanted to take a moment and ask you to be praying for the ministry of The Open Word. I know God is working through the messages I've been able to share, and He's opening hearts to His love every step of the way. As Chris was saying, this book I'm teaching from is just filled with grace, and I want everyone to know about it. Would you pray that more and more people would come to know the saving grace of Jesus? Would you pray too for all of us who are creating the Open Word program? We want to keep focused on Jesus, not on us. Thanks so much for praying, and thanks for joining me today on The Open Word. Make us more.